Welcome to the Why Gotta Why podcast brought to you by Browncroft Community Church and the Lumavaz Network out of Saddleback Church. We are really grateful that you're here with us. We're here to respond to the questions you don't feel comfortable asking in church. And before I throw to our guest, Alyssa, how are you doing today? I'm good here. How are you? I'm well. Today, um, we're in a series on the credibility of Christianity. And the question that we're asking is, why aren't churches more diverse? And I'm really excited about our guest. His name is Brian Loritz. He is the recent author of The Offensive Church, Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. We're very thankful for Krista Clayton from the publisher IVP. Just one thing, uh, if you love this episode, which we know you will, you can type in Why God two weeks after as a code on the IVP website to get a discount off this book. So. Hey, Brian, without further ado, we're going to welcome you here. Why don't, for our audience that doesn't know you, why don't you introduce yourself and we'll get started. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the only pertinent information is uh, husband of Corey. I've uh, been married for a little over 24 years now. Uh, three uh, three sons. I have a, my 22-year-old is uh, a military police officer. My 20-year-old uh, is in his third year of college, and my 18-year-old is doing a gap year overseas. So, um, and I've written a few things, uh, and I help church planters. I'm a professor, uh, and I also serve as a teaching pastor at a church. Well, great. It sounds like you have a ton of experience. Just to kind of get us started, um, so you, I read um, the book Inside Outsider, um, which I really, really appreciated. And this is in your first book about diversity and racism and unity. So I guess my first question to you for our skeptics out there is what has changed in the conversation of churches on this topic and what hasn't changed in your perspective? Yeah, you know, I think a bit of a historical context would be helpful. You know, when we talk about America and narratives of race and the church, there's a whole lot that goes with that, right? Um, I, obviously, the, the Native Americans were here first, uh, but then you had uh, Europeans who came here for uh, religious freedom. And so they came here for very much religious reasons. They settled on the East Coast. Uh, we would know them as uh, the Puritans, and their progeny uh, would be what we would today call modern evangelicals. Um, and so, listen, I've read books written by the Puritans. Uh, they were, like all of us, incredibly nuanced and complicated people, kind of an amalgamation of good and bad. Um, I, I am not on the train of just you know, villainizing people and just kind of taking a Photoshop, uh, a, a, a picture of them on their worst day, and they never get past that. So they, they had an incredible soteriology that is doctrine of salvation. There's a way in which they can speak to the soul. Um, their Achilles heel was they had a horrible um, anthropology or doctrine of humanity. And because of that, there were many Puritans um, who, under the guise of Christianity, who owned slaves 
Um, Puritans like Jonathan Edwards, uh, Cotton Mather, when he was negotiating to become a pastor at a church in the Massachusetts area, he actually had it negotiated into his compensation package that he would be given a slave, which he named Onesimus, uh, and referred to him as, as an it. Uh, by far to me, the worst and most egregious was probably the most popular evangelical preacher in the world of his day, a guy by the name of George Whitfield. Uh, George Whitfield is incredibly pro problematic because he actually lobbied the state of Georgia to legalize slavery. Uh, initially, slavery in Georgia was outlawed, but George Whitfield, this incredible evangelical preacher, uh, he was uh, really concerned about orphans, wanted to set up um, an economic system to care for uh, an orphanage, wanted to base it off the plantation model, wanted to do it in Georgia. Uh, the problem was Georgia didn't uh, legalize slavery. Well, it was because of Whitfield's lobbying that Georgia, a state I grew up in, ultimately legalized slavery. And so what you have is the very roots of the church in America um, viewed black people as second-class citizens and shockingly enough, many of their churches were multi-ethnic. Uh, they were diverse, they just weren't unified, meaning there were blacks only sections where only blacks could sit. I'll say this last thing, uh, kind of to give a historical context. In the late 1700s in Philadelphia, I think St. George's Methodist Church, there was a black man who had the audacity to pray in the whites only section of the church. Think about that statement. Um, the white people were so incensed, they didn't even wait for him to finish praying. They picked him up off of his knees, threw him out of the church. And over the next couple of weeks, all the blacks left that church. They bought a little blacksmith shop, started their own church. That would become the, uh, the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, AME, which is the first and oldest historically black denomination. And that would just kind of begin a sad chapter where all of the historic black denominations were, were started because of this issue of race. And so it's probably a tough statement, but if the white church would have been the church, we would never have the black church. And we just have not been able to move past that narrative. So hopefully that sets a bit of a historical context as it relates to our current cultural moment. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that, that I didn't know all the background and things like that. So thank you for setting that up for us so that we could continue the conversation with that in mind. So back to Peter's original question, what was the question that you had asked? Well, I guess um, with that context, what what's different now than, say, 10 years ago? Probably even a better question. What's different now versus a couple hundred years yeah. ago? And maybe what's the same, too? Because that's a great yeah. context to set up. Yeah, in some in some ways, things have gotten better. But actually, over the last 10 years, I think we can make a case that things have actually gotten worse. So my space is what we would call the multi-ethnic church. And when we use that phrase, multi-ethnic church, we are being very specific. So sociologists say you're only a multi-ethnic church if you meet the 80-20 rule. And the 80-20 rule simply means no one ethnicity makes up more than 80% of the whole, right? So if you have 100 people at your church and uh, 84 of them are Korean and 16 of them are other, you're not considered multi-ethnic. So you have to meet the 80-20 rule. So if you use that benchmark, there was a study that came out, I think, January of 2021, 
that looked at the evangelical church. So we're not talking mainline denominations, but the evangelical church in America, they studied it from 1998 until 2020. Uh, using the 80-20 rule, they said the church actually grew from 7% multi-ethnic in 1998 to 22% multi-ethnic uh, by the end of 2019, right? So we took enormous strides forward. Uh, we're waiting on the, le on the recent data because that data was released before George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. And of course, we know all the rhetoric surrounding that, even the uh, the election of 2020 and um, all of the hoopla around that. And then, of course, we have the sad events of January 6th. My suspicion is, just based on my own consulting work um, in churches, is that the church took massive steps back in the aftermath of 2020 as it relates to diversity. Yeah. So something I want to come to because uh, you're unique. A lot of our listeners might hear someone that's a Christian um, who they're struggling with even just the conversation of race. And you have this unique perspective of you're a follower of Jesus, you're a pastor. And the history that you just gave was you said, hey, I'm a Christian. Let me just tell it to you like it is. Um, and it seems like that is something that a lot of skeptics and people that doubt. We can't even recognize the history. We can't have a civil conversation about it. How do you manage that tension just for yourself personally to have this kind of conversation with yourself and then also have to teach it um, and write about it and communicate about it? So, yeah, so let's uh, I think you bring up. Uh, not only an important question, I think it is one of the questions that we have to wrestle with, especially in our current cultural moment where you have a lot of people who are even questioning, should we should we recognize Black History Month? Or there's a movement to say we should take black history or minimize black history from our curriculum. Or if you do have black history, for some reason, you're woke. All right. So here's here's how I'd like to answer that. Let's just remove the race thing. And let's just talk purely from a unity perspective. Now I'm married and this isn't true of my wife, but for the sake of argument, let's say that a part of my wife's narrative prior to us meeting was there was assault and abuse. Let's just say that was a part of her narrative, right? We get together, we're married and uh, we're sitting on the sofa one night watching TV and up pops Harvey Weinstein or Matt Lauer or any any person you might pick. And all of a sudden my wife is triggered and the tears start to flow and she's in a rage and she's talking about everything that happened to her. Now, here's 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 what I could say. Honey, is must everything always be about assault and abuse with you? I mean, my goodness, I, I had nothing to do with that. I didn't do it. That, that was other people. I think any person with a decent bit of humanity would look at me and say, if that's your response, you're an idiot. You're just an idiot. Even though it's not your history, you are called to walk in unity, what the Bible calls oneness with your wife. And you can't have oneness unless you're willing to take a deep dive into her narrative, all of her narrative. There's no way in the world... You can know me, the totality of who I am, 
without having some hard, uncomfortable conversations about painful parts of my story and vice versa. So, so to ignore a person's history or to diminish it is to, at the same time, abdicate any kind of thought or hopes or dreams of unity. That's how I would respond. How would you define unity? Um, unity is not uniformity. Uh, unity, I would say, is soul level um, harmony and agreement around the core essentials um, that's held together by an unwavering commitment, what the Bible calls agape love. So it is this sense in which I, I'm not trying to clone you into my image, and I, I don't need to clone myself into your image. So there has to be distinctives. There has to be differences. But there are, there are a few foundational things that we are fighting to come into agreement on. Right. So, uh, you know, listen, a lot of your listeners aren't aren't Christian. So, again, let me just put it back in a marriage context or whatever. Um, and, and that is, you know, you and your partner, there's going to be incredible points of differences. And those differences are just going to remain there. In fact, we can even argue that those differences actually are part of what makes it work. Right. Um but there has to be some core level agreements on something. So taking it out of a spiritual box, you know, if, if there's not an agreement to how we how we resolve conflict, you're going to get divorced. Um, if there's not an agreement on how we approach from a basic philosophical level finances, your relationship is not going to work. How we communicate with one another. I mean, these are, these are solid foundational things that you have to recognize. We've got to come to agreement on how we deal with these core issues. Now, within that, there's latitude, right? Um, you know, there's some things that my wife wishes she could change about me that aren't core, that probably drives her nuts. That's probably not going to change and vice versa. But on the solid main big rocks kind of a deal, we've got to come to some sense of agreement as it relates to how we hash these things out in the context of our relationship. I love that question from Alyssa. And just, you know, kind of with our guest, as you've mentioned that, you know, they're in a season of doubt or deconstructing, you know, what what did the New Testament get right about the current conversation that we're having. Um, and then maybe, you know, we've interviewed Nijay Gupta, who talked about translation. He he got frustrated. He's like, I don't feel like the New Testament writers went far enough. So, you know, from your perspective, theologically, what is, you know, for our listeners, what's the hope and the expectation of diversity within the church and Christianity? Yeah, another beautiful question. So I listen, the church has been called the greatest social experiment in the world. And the reason for that is as polarized as we might think in America, that certain people groups are, whether or not it's black and white or Latino, Chinese, Japanese, whatever that may be. The Jew and Gentile thing was as divisive, if not more divisive, like there were Jewish laws that outlawed Gentiles from entering certain parts of the temple uh, that govern how Jews interacted with Gentiles, so on and so forth. 
when the New Testament happens, Jesus gives a commission to his disciples to make to make disciples, not just of the Jewish people, but he sends them into all the world to make to make disciples. So if you just read through the book of Acts, the amazing thing is when Paul walks into a city, the Apostle Paul, he always asks two questions. First question is, um, where's the local synagogue? Because he wanted to preach Christ to the Jews. Um, and so he preaches Christ to the Jews at the local synagogue. Some of them, uh, not all of them, in, off, in often cases, not even most of them, get saved. They become followers of Jesus. But Paul's not done. His next question is, where do the Gentiles hang out? In Acts 17, they tell him Mars Hill. In Acts 19, it's the Hall of Tyrannus. Acts 18, it actually says Paul was reasoning with both Jews and Greeks. And so he shares Christ to, with Gentiles. Some Gentiles come to know Christ. Now he's got a problem. And the problem is these two groups hate each other. So what is he to do? Now, if he were to do the early to mid 20th century American thing, he would have started two separate churches, two separate churches. That was that was called um, the homogeneous unit principle. It was a church growth technique in the mid 20th century. Um, I think it was Donald McGavern who came up with it. That pretty much says, for pragmatic purposes, birds of a feather flock together, find your demographic, cater to your demographic, focus on your demographic, highly pragmatic, highly unbiblical. Paul says, I'm not starting two separate churches. I'm going to start one church, and I'm going to call you two groups of people to work out horizontally what God in Christ has already accomplished for you vertically, which is reconciliation. And that is why in the first century world, it was the church of Jesus Christ that was the only place where you could find substantive relationships across the ethnic line, across the class line. If you don't know anything about Roman society, they, they had firm social class boundaries and across the gender line. That was the church of Jesus Christ. That's why, I mean, if you even if you go to Acts 16, um, when Paul's in Philippi, the first three members of the church is a wealthy woman named Lydia, a slave girl, and a blue-collar Philippian jailer. Those are your first three members, right? And so, unfortunately, we've lost that today. I mean, you can literally drive down the street and go, that's the rich church, that's the poor church, that's the Fox News church, that's the CNN church, that's the MSNBC church, that's the Republican church. That's the, I mean, we have veered way off of the vision of what the church can be. And, and listen, I completely understand. I'd, I'd love to have conversations with individuals because I completely understand why people are deconstructing. Uh, because the homogenous church, there, there's nothing, um, there's nothing powerful in the homogenous church. It's when you get different people together over the long haul. That's where the real power is. Why do you think? What do you think changed between the time where the church was integrated and now, where you drive down the street and you see the different types, the different um, churches segregated? Like, what, well, why do you think that is? Sorry so, about the loaded question, but no, 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 no. What, what do you think the reasoning behind that is? I just, I mean, I'm mean, so interested it, in your answer. Part, part of it, be, part of it is because of how we began, right? When I, when I talk about the roots of Christianity in America, it's tethered to this issue of race. Now we can come up to Jim Crow. So now we can leave slavery and come up to Jim Crow. The best way I can describe it um, is this whole idea of imagine, um, imagine you're your grandfather or, or your great-great-grandfather, let's say, for the sake of argument, was white. Let's say he owned slaves. And my great-great-grandfather was one of his slaves. Imagine they sat down to play Monopoly. 
right? And so they're playing Monopoly. My great-great-grandfather, who's a slave a couple hundred years ago, passes go. Your great-great-grandfather, who owns him, punches him in the mouth, takes his $200, says, you will not collect your $200. You will not buy property. That's how the game is played for centuries. Now, it's Jim Crow. It's my grandfather's turn to now play Monopoly, and your grandfather, for the sake of argument, let's say is white, they sit down and play, and your grandfather says to my grandfather, I am so sorry. The way my, the way my grandfather treated your grandfather was horrible. Uh, so I'm going to let you pass go. I'm going to let you collect $200. I'm going to let you buy property, but only the purple and light blue properties. You cannot buy dark blue. Forget Broadway, forget Park Place, forget the green properties. This is what we call in the 20th century redlining, redlining. Now, we are still experiencing the aftershocks of redlining because what did redlining do? Redlining put people together uh, according to race and economic position, which now segregated us, and we are still feeling the lingering effects of that. You know, that's why, listen, uh, as an African-American man, you know, I I'm a registered independent. I don't have a dog in this fight. I hate partisan politics. One of the things I say to my African-American friends is vote how you want, but at least let's be educated. And one of the things um, me and my African-American siblings have got to come to grips with is the Democrats have not moved the needle as it relates to closing the wealth gap. The wealth gap between the average black household and the average white household has not decreased in decades. And a part of the reason why is one of the benchmarks for legacy wealth building is home ownership. And that home ownership is based on location, and all of that goes back to redlining. Well, what is the church, to answer your question? The church is in a geographical place. And so now we introduce to the church not only ethnicity and race, so that church is in a black community, but now we introduce the idea of economics. That's what's happening. And so when cities started to get bad, we now had white flight moving out to the suburbs. Now in the early 2000s, listen, I love Tim Keller. Love Tim Keller. Considered him to be a mentor of sorts. Had a personal relationship with him. It's interesting to me that the city talk worked hand in hand with gentrification. City talk, church planting, gentrification all went hand in hand. They weren't talking about loving the city in the 70s and 80s. They were getting out of there. And so all of these things go together. I can talk forever about that. But the legacy of redlining is why, to answer your question, we continue to find ourselves uh, in very segregated, homogenous, culturally, economically, eth ethnicity-wise. It's, it's a big thing. I totally 100% agree. So I think I have another follow-up question from that and pulling from something you were talking about earlier which is this idea of being offensive and being on the offense instead of the defense. So I think it's really easy for Gen Z and even for people in general to rally together, um, even Christians, to pull together in unity when there is something um, to go on the defense about. How do you go about, maybe you talk about this in your book, um, becoming an offensive church, becoming um, rallying together um, becoming diverse, um, becoming offensive together. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, One of the things I suggest in the book is part of the problem with discipleship in the West uh, is that it's very individual and solely vertical. So when we think about discipleship models, typically what we're saying is I'm going to teach you how to have a quiet time, um, teach you how to pray, teach you how to read your Bible, teach you what life in the spirit looks like, teach you how to study the word, all great, wonderful things. But the problem is discipleship arises from the East. And in the East, discipleship wasn't solely individual or vertical. It was also horizontal and communal. This is why the first thing Jesus does when he begins his, his, his public ministry is he selects not just one person or not just a group of people to do a series of one-on-ones. He selects a group of people called the disciples, puts them in a group together and does life with them for three years. Oh, by the way, even though they're all Jewish men, which would have fit the culture of the time, they're incredibly different. You've got a zealot and you've got a tax collector in the same group. So here's my argument. What's missing in the churches is a horizontal kind of discipleship in which we have neglected to disciple people in the new humanity. One of the ways we feel this profoundly is racially. So when something happens, right, and you go on a person's social media page and they comment about whatever racial oriented uh, thing it was, and then you see all these comments and the, the vitriol. What grieves me is not just the disparity but the disparity that seems to point to a deeper problem, and that is, wow, we don't really know each other. We don't really do life with each other. Because if you do life, like have meaningful relationships across the divide, you wouldn't speak to or about that person the way that you have, right? So I'll just say it this way, and I know it's a bit complicated. Um, I used to have some very insensitive, dare I even say, homophobic views. What changed that for me was a deep abiding friendship with a lesbian couple. They didn't change my convictions, but they softened. They softened both my words and they deepened my empathy and compassion. What changed me wasn't reading a book or a passage of scripture. What changed me was having meaningful, authentic relationships with people who are completely different than me. That's what's missing in the race conversation is I want to look at some people sometimes and say, wow, you really do need white, wealthy friends or wow, you really do need Mexican, Latino, whatever kind of friends. Because in the absence of that, you will continue to just have this abrasive, unkind rhetoric. And so when we disciple people in the new humanity, that's what I'm getting at. So uh, Alyssa's Gen Z, I'm not. So I mean, maybe Alyssa should answer this, but I'm also kind of curious with your experience. So you're you're a pastor in a very, very big college town. I think you're near Duke and UNC and these big colleges that we see Um, place of basketball and football. But, you know, I I guess as I've talked with Alyssa and other Gen Zers, it seems like the assumption is 
the school I went to at least tried and valued diversity. Um, the organizations that I, I'm probably going to work for, diversity could be in a core value. But then when I come to the church, it doesn't seem as important. How, how have you kind of in your role kind of managed that? Because it just seems like a, 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 just a baseline assumption that maybe the church is messed with. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, um, I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is, unfortunately, there's a lot of truth uh, to what these people are saying. There are a lot of churches that um, they just don't value it. And they may say <laughs> they may say we value it, but there's a price tag that comes with this kind of stuff. And a lot of these churches aren't willing to pay the cost. Um, and so let me just stop right there and just acknowledge that there's a whole lot of truth, unfortunately, uh, in what they're saying. That said, even looking at the statistics, even 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 with us taking some steps back. Right. Which is my hunch. So I'm talking 7% to 22%. Um, even if we've taken some steps back, I still believe we're at a net positive compared to where we were in 1998. So that's growth. Um, I work a lot with church planters, the average church plant, um, to church planter today that I talked to. This is on their radar from day one. Um, they just need help. Now that said, I do feel like. Um, and I don't want to get into the weeds of this at all because this isn't why you have me on the show. I think, I think having worked in this space for a while, one of the things that you immediately come to grips with is um, what the world means by diversity and what the church means by diversity are oftentimes at odds, right? So for the sake of this conversation, we're talking about racial diversity um, and which I would think is a good thing. There are other forms of diversity that we would say needs to be in the church, needs to be in the church, but, but there are different forms to that that complicate the issues that, that we would need to speak to through a biblical lens. And that's all I'll speak to that. I, that's just a long-winded way of me saying, if you've got a person who, who their grid of diversity is what they're seeing on the university or what they're seeing in the marketplace. And they want that same exact grid to be used in the local church. Well, you're going to be disappointed. Um, and what I'm saying is some of that disappointment, I think there's biblical grounds for. Um, so, yeah. So let's kind of go personal with you. Um, we just got done with a series called Why Do You Still Follow Jesus? I think I'll ask two layers to that. Um, just, you know, you've hinted at your experience in your books, you've shared your experience. Number one, why do you still follow Jesus? But then number two, why are you still, you know, you just mentioned in the last question, in this space um, as a pastor, you know, kind of having these conversations, um, why are you still where you are today? Look, I'll answer the last part first. Um, I'm, I'm laboring for my kids, to be honest with you. Um, you know, so when my 22 year old is, uh, when he calls me, uh, like he did about a year ago, um, and he was, he's looking for churches and he comes, he calls me right after church and he says, he's frustrated 
Um, he goes, man, the, the, the word was good. The worship was okay. But dad, all the churches here are just homogenous. And there's a frustration in him. Part of me goes, that's it. Because I have given him a norm in the multi-ethnic church. And having gotten a taste of that, he's not willing to go back. That's what I'm working for, is when I read the Bible and John says, I looked up into heaven and I saw people from every nation, tribe and tongue. And you go, wait a minute, John, how do you know that on site unless you're seeing differences in color? Right. Then I go, oh, wow, our future eternal reality is going to be diverse. Like like my blackness is not a fruit of the fall. It's a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And then Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, if heaven's diverse, I don't want to wait until I die to experience that. I want to experience that right now in this thing called the church. So I'm laboring to establish a new normal for my kids and my grandkids and future generations. Um, that's, that's why I'm doing Why do I follow Jesus? Um, you know, I, there's a lot of reasons why, right? I, I think the distinctive of Christianity, the aroma of grace that I think what sets Christianity apart is this, this grace thing, you know, C.S. Lewis, the famous story is he walked in mid conversation. They were, some people were talking about the differences between Christianity and other world religions and C.S. Lewis says, well, that's easy. The difference is grace. Like the fact that I don't have to earn my way into heaven, the fact that my debt's been paid and that all of my Christian life is just a response of gratitude to the grace of God. I mean, that's a major reason why. Um, but I've also experienced God. I, I, I think I think one of the uniquenesses of Christianity is not a God who eliminates us from trouble. Christians will suffer. In this world, you will have sorrow, the Bible talks about. But but to have a God who is with us in the suffering, um, David talks about, Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for I know that you're with me. Um, and having, I, I guess what I'm saying, I can give you a theoretical answer. I can give you an answer that's on a page. But I can also give you a highly experiential, even pragmatic answer and just say, I, I know that I know uh, that Jesus is good. I've tasted and I've seen and I don't want to go back to anything else. I kind of want to ask another question that's taking it in a different direction. I feel like we've talked a lot about how um, the church has failed or how um, people haven't. Yeah. We've kind of leaned a little bit more on the negative side, thinking about diversity, which I think there's room for and I think there's space for. But I also want to leave room for positives in diversity and ask the question of what have you seen go right in the church um, as far as diversity? Where have you seen churches get it right? What have you seen that has worked for churches in terms of creating a diverse congregation? Let's let's. Let's take it in a little more positive direction because I'm, I'm interested to know. I'm, I'm so interested in this topic. Well, I would say, uh, first of all, um, you know, I tell church planters this all the time. Um, diverse churches are becoming more and more of a felt need. Uh, in, in other words, in, 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 you know, this is another beautiful thing about Gen Z right along with the justice part of 
things is is my kids um, and, I, and I think they're pretty normal for their generation along these lines. Yes, a part of it is we've raised them in multi-ethnic churches, but but I just I just think that the race thing is not as big of a thing for them as it was for mom and dad. Like I, I even remember one of my kids just, you know, we were living in Memphis at the time and he wanted to take this girl to the dance. She happened to be white. And my initial reaction was to tense up a little bit. Um, and then after a brief conversation, just realizing that's just not a deal. It's, it's not a deal for him. It's not a deal for her. Um, and that not being a deal, I think, is is pointing to a wonderful felt need, which means there's this wonderful upsurge of um, of energy coming from from people who are walking into churches going. Now, why aren't you doing this? I think Gen Z is bringing some added pressure, just going, why aren't we going after this? Like, this is kind of weird that we're not doing this. Um, and so I would say, number one, that's a beautiful thing that I'm seeing more and more of. I didn't see it in Gen X, not seeing as much in millennials. I am seeing it in Gen Z. Um, I do think um, if you listen, if you talk about Christian music, there is this... Um, if, if we're talking about Elevation or Maverick City, they are, I mean, they're these wonderfully eclectic, diverse, unique sound that can play in a million different directions. That's starting to seep into our churches. And that diverse sound is, I think, is a wonderful thing that's starting to create environments and cultures that is conducive absolutely conducive to that. And, and I see a hunger among church planters who are just going, I want this to be from day one. Certainly not every church planter is saying that. So I, I think this thing is trending in the right direction. Absolutely trending in the right direction. So. So let's close with these last two questions. So, you know, our, you know, the 24 year old out there that, Hey, I'm interested in Christianity um, but this is a question I'm asking. Why aren't churches more diverse? Uh, what would you say to them about stepping into a church and stepping into Christianity, especially if this is just a huge issue on their heart? Yes. Um, so sometimes my response to people who ask the race question as it relates to church and then use that as kind of an exit from the church and an excuse to deconstruct. I, I, I just want to say real gently, let's call a timeout. The church is not the only institution with race issues, right? In fact, if I look at the Greek system on college campuses, by and large to this day, the Greek systems, fraternities, sororities, are, are predominantly homogenous, right? So I just want to tell people, don't put a burden on the institution of the church that you're not putting on other groups burden uh, or, or entities that you may, that you may have. That's, that's just not a fair thing. And I feel like, you know, it's the same argument as it relates to, well, there's hypocrites in the church. No one's going to argue with you about that. But whenever you put people together, there's going to be hypocrisy. I don't, I don't care what it is we're talking about. So I always, I always like to just say, let's be equitable here. 
in our critiques. I'm not arguing with you, but let's be equitable. No organization lives up to its ideals because we're flawed, imperfect people, right? Are we willing to just kind of go at it, go at it for the long haul? Um, and so after that, I want to encourage people, we need you to be a part of the solution. So are you going to sit back and just critique or, man, come on, like we, we, we want you to lock arms with us and we believe in something called the priesthood of all believers, the body of Christ, that you play a valuable role in this. Paul actually says when he uses the body metaphor to talk about the church, he says the parts that we don't see are more valuable than the parts that we do see. I tell our church all the time, I, I'm, I'm like the mouth, right? I'm the mouth. Um, and if my mouth doesn't work, you can still get food into me through my arm or I can communicate with my hands, but you don't see my liver. If I don't have a liver, we're done. Like, we're just done. And so I want to say to everybody, you play a vital role in this social experiment called the church. And I want to see you cross over from being a, a critic to being an advocate. And we need you to help us be better. That would be my, that would be my plea is help us be better. Take that energy, take those convictions and channel it in a positive way. You may have needed to leave that one church, but, but there's another church we believe that you could, you could get into that's got humble, great leaders. That's got a great place for you to serve. Like there's plenty of places for you to go. Don't let one church turn you off from the whole. Hmm. Wow. So what we'll do here, uh, Brian is uh, like a great pastor. We'll do final remarks. So Alyssa and I will share just kind of our last thoughts and then uh, whatever mess we leave, uh, you can clean up. Does that sound good? <laughs> so Alyssa, do you want to go first or do you want me? I think I'll go. Okay. Yeah. I just, I really appreciate everything that you had to say today, Brian. I, I, this topic is, it's personal to me because um, I'm, I'm mixed. It's not very obvious. I'm kind of light skinned, but I'm mixed. And so I come to Browncroft and I'm one of some people of color, but it's not a very diverse church if we're being honest. Mixed how? Like what, what are the ethnicities? I'm half black, half white. Okay. But so this, this topic is very, um, it's on my heart all the time. Every time I step into the doors of Browncroft, I'm thinking about diversity. Um, I work a lot with children and youth and to um, connect with, with those children and youth that I see who are also diverse and coming to Browncroft and making sure that this is a, a spot where they feel seen and heard and welcomed um, and not a spot where they're, they don't feel like there's a place for them. Um, so this, I've just really enjoyed talking to you and learning from you. I think of a story um, that's personal to me where um, a man from our church who has, he's, uh, has a mixed son and he remembers the first time that I um, checked him in to our kids program um, because he said he knew that I um, came from a diverse background just by the way that I looked at his son, he said. Mm. Um, he could tell that I looked at him with love and with compassion and with this sense of I got you um, because I did. And I that's what I want everyone to feel when they walk into church. Um, 
whether they are a person of color or a white person or whoever they are, I think that everybody should walk into whatever church they go to and they should feel like somebody looks at them and, and says, I've got you. Um, and so I think just that's my final remark is just I'm diversity, whether it's racial diversity or diversity in general, um, inclusion uh, is important to me because the, the church is a, a supposed to be a place where people can experience the love of Jesus and they can't do that if they're not welcomed in or if they're not there, uh, if they don't want to be there. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm just really grateful for this conversation and to continue talking about this topic. And I'm also Gen Z, so maybe I'm just a little bit more socially justice inclined, but yeah. You know what? I, I actually don't have anything to add to that beautiful story. So Brian, I'm just going to let you close wherever you feel God's leading. Yeah, we just, we need people. This work is, it's slow. It's uh, at times very tedious. Um, I have a friend of mine who calls it a beautiful mess. And so there's no quick fixes to this. And, but we just need people to lock in, love each other well. It's not like reading a book or listening to a podcast is going to all of a sudden solve everything. And so I think you need to be gracious with other people, patient with other people, gracious and patient with yourself. But I really believe we're going to get there. And it's, it's just going to take all kinds of people uh, deeply committed to Jesus Christ and loving one another. Um, I'm just reminded of Jesus's parting words when he said, by this will all people know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And may this, may this be true of us in a million different directions, especially when we talk about um, engaging people who are ethnically different than us. Amen. Well, uh, Brian, where's the best place that people can follow you? Oh, gosh. Um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not on X as I am on X, but I'm not on there as much. Um, you know, you can find me on uh, Instagram threads. You can find me on Instagram, um, Facebook, although my kids say that's for old people. Um, you know, I've got a website, brianleritz.com. All my books are on Amazon. Uh, you can just type in my name and that stuff will come up there. And uh, we'd like to thank Krista Clayton uh, because you can buy this book for the two weeks after um, this uh, podcast airs. If you use the code YGOD and check out, you're going to get a discount. And um, we'd encourage everyone to buy this. And if you want to find out more about us, go to YGODYpodcast.com. Click the subscribe button. You'll get this episode and many others coming to your inbox every week. Thank you so very much.